So it's really about tapping into the collective knowledge, right, of the entire team, making sure that you're building that collective knowledge. It's also like, what can I learn from you? Welcome to Presales Heroes by Vivin. I'm your host and presales evangelist, Perry Bronson. Today's topic is about how succeeding in presales is really all about building customer empathy. My guest is Tosin Ajayi. He is the director of solutions architecture at MongoDB, and he brings a wealth of experience to pre-sales leadership, having spent years at companies like Logi and IBM. Uh, Tosin was also recently on a fireside chat I hosted on building pre-sales tribal knowledge. And we had such a wonderful, wonderful time and so many good insights that I wanted to have you back on the podcast to get a little bit deeper into this customer empathy topic that you brought up. I would love to hear a little bit about your hero origin story. Thanks for having me back, Barry. Yeah, so I think really the um, my story about how I got into pre-sales, uh, you know, it's a, it's actually a fairly interesting story because, you know, earlier in my career, I wasn't particularly aware of a role or a profession for that matter called uh, pre-sales. You know, I, I grew up in a household where, you know, you were either like a, a hands-on engineer, like a software engineer or a hardware engineer, and maybe an accountant, a doctor, a lawyer, things of that sort, you know. So I had my eyes set on software and I enjoyed it. As I developed more software and I realized, um, you know, requests for feature developments came in, I often wondered, why and where those requests came from. Uh, what's the problem the customer was facing when they came up with this request? How did we arrive at, at this versus another approach and so on and so forth? And I think the more I dug into it, the more I realized I'm missing something. You know, I, feel, I felt like I was missing uh, the story from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I started digging a little bit more and trying to look at how I can not particularly change my career, but reorient myself uh, in a manner that allowed me to understand more what the customer pain is. And so, you know, that led me into several different roles uh, within IBM. The, the real crux of it is, you know, as I dug around, I started finding out more about different roles, such as things like pre-sale, consulting, uh, even for that matter, customer support, which I was already aware of, right? And I started looking at the different DNA, the identity of those roles, what they mean for the customer, how the teams engage. Uh, and the more I dug in, the more I started drawing more towards pre-sales. But even at that point, Perry, I don't know that I had landed on pre-sales. So to be completely honest, I considered going into consulting, we actually worked directly with customers, implementing based on what I was hearing uh, with the boots on ground, right? Uh, and as well as looking more into pre-sales. I tried to make a move even within my current company at that time, but I think the opportunities just weren't available. So I started looking around and said, you know, this is something I really would like to explore more. But I started doing some searches and looking at different companies and, and lo and behold, the pre-sales role bubbled up more and more as an actual career path. And the more I understood what the role is in its entirety, not just around implementation, but really digging for pain, right? Doing good discovery, you know, so to speak, in, in, in pre-sales and sales terminology and understanding customers' whys, I realized it's exactly what I was looking for. Now, I never want to lose my technical chops, at least, you know, not nowadays, you know, if you ask my team, they'll probably tell me that's probably a lost cause at this point. But, um, you know, I, I didn't want to veer too far away from technology. I still very, I'm still very technical. I like to think technically. I like to think technology. I like to think customers as well. 
So the ability uh, to find, or at least the opportunity, I should say, of a role that allowed me to truly merge my technical background and prowess with the things that you know I've been drawn to is what really landed me pre-sales. So I did my search and I landed at a, a company called Large Analytics, a really great company. Uh, at that point, was uh, still fairly relatively young uh, company, and um, it, it was just really great time for me, in my career, to make that move into pre-sales. And there, I learned very much the mechanics of pre-sales, the purpose of pre-sales, kind of the value that the pre-sales engineer actually brings to the entire sales cycle. Understanding that sales doesn't just happen with sales reps and account executives only, but there is, frankly speaking, what I consider the pillar for any sales option or sales process in pre-sales engineers. I really just kind of rounded out that search for me and, you know, and I've been here ever since. Wow. I love all the different paths. And I feel like 90% 90% of the time when I ask people this question of how they got into pre-sales, they're like, well, I'd never heard of it. But as soon as I figured out what it was, it was pretty clear that's what I should be doing. And I have a similar experience, but I love the, the technical chops as well. Obviously, MongoDB, um, you know, very technical product solution. Um, and I noticed you have a master's in electrical engineering. It's, it's so interesting, you know. My dad is the one who got me excited about software growing up, and he studied electrical engineering, you know, but I don't think they even had CS at that time. And it actually set him up for a really strong career as a hybrid hardware software engineer back in the like 80s. <laughs> but um, what what kind of interest interested you in that that field? And then what took you from electrical to, um, to software? So actually, maybe to go a little bit farther back. So my bachelor's degree is actually in computer science. So I started mm-hmm. uh, at least my higher education, so to speak, in, in software and computer science. So I think I'd always been oriented towards software. I think what really drew me to electrical engineering uh, was, again, a desire to understand a little bit more around the hardware components of it. But to be very clear, I wasn't particularly hardware engineer. Even during my electrical engineer advanced degree, I still focused more on things like signal processing and uh, network uh, networking, so to speak. Right. So I was very much geared more uh, towards the software aspect of the uh, of the specialty, not so much the hardware component of. Now, I did some of that for sure. You know, I did things like circuits and so on, right? Which I found quite interesting as well. But um, you know, I, I was more interested in things like DSP and and some of the network you know subjects that I learned in school. After that, though, you know, I think bringing out that knowledge, you know, with um, you know my bachelor's degree in computer science and my master's degree in electrical engineering. Uh, you know, I knew that this is kind of, I mean, I, I was already interested, uh, but it was, I was at a point in my time and frankly speaking, my career where I, you know, I had to make a decision, you know, do I want to go into, you know, software development, you know, around, you know, things like databases and, and other types of software that, you know, enterprises use uh, to solve things like data problems and things of that sort, or did I want to go into software development with a hardware company like, a Motorola or a TI at the time and things of that sort, right? So I was at a juncture in my career and I had opportunities in both directions, right? I think what really got me into software was this, you know, um, you know, I'm all I'm a follower of things like Gartner reports and other types of publications. And something that I read a while back was, you know, obviously software was the future, right? And there were certain areas that Gartner called out as 
the future of the, you know, it was around mid-2000s, right? So it was the future in another, another 10 years where you know, the trend was going to go. And some of the things it called out was the data, right? Data was the analytics, virtualization uh, was one. And, um, you know, and I started thinking about it and I was like, you know, this is really, really cool. You know, so I wanted to go into an area that brought me closer to data. And luckily I had an opportunity with IBM, you know, with a, you know, a division that specialized in database development. Uh, and that's basically where I landed, right? And it's frankly speaking, Perry, being probably one of the better decisions I've made in my career because it's really laid the foundation uh, even for where I am today, right? So I'm super happy about that. Yeah, that's so interesting. So at IBM, you were uh, an engineer as well as a customer advocate. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about what that is. What is a, yeah. uh, an engineer that's also a customer advocate? I've never really seen that before. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, frankly, it was a little bit of a hybrid uh, responsibility. So, you know, I, you know, at IBM, I was a software developer. You know, I worked on you know, the part of a product that had to do with things like deployment and installation and, you know, uh, and maybe some parts of uh, setup and operations of the, of the actual database. And, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'd always been interested about, you know, in what customers want, why they want what they want, right, the questions they're asking. And it was very clear at the time that there was an opportunity, right, for us to dig a little bit deeper, not just to get the products developed, and have it working for the customer, but also kind of go back to them and maybe often do often uh, frequent retros retrospective about mm -hmm. you know, what they're finding interesting with the product, how things were working, uh, areas that we could improve on, and bring that information back to our development team, right? And so, you know, at that point, you know, I worked with uh, some of the other senior architects and we basically said, hey, you know what? You're going to be a customer advocate for some of our bigger customers at the Time, you know, the division of IBM that I was at. And, uh, you know, that's how that role kind of started. So it was really a hybrid role that developed as part of my role as a software engineer to bring the feedback uh, back from the customers who were using our product at the time. Interesting. So it's almost like you were a hybrid pre-sales and engineer at the same time, it sounds like. Yeah. Were, yeah, were your customers yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and at that time, I didn't know what pre-sales was, right? Um, I wasn't particularly aware of the role, but it was, uh, frankly speaking, driven by an interest, you know, as well as a business need that evidently existed at the time, you know, in, in my profession, in my career. Makes sense, yeah. So it sounds like, you know, you mentioned you, you'd set a strong foundation for pre-sales in that role with, you know, kind of realizing it through the process. Would you say that that is what set you up for leadership when you moved on to Logi? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, my leadership path as well is, uh, you know, quite an interesting one. You know, I had an opportunity uh, when I was at IBM. I was asked at one point, you know, if I thought about becoming a manager. But, you know, at that time, I think, you know, it was still very early in my career. And, you know, I was very um, focused on mastering my craft, which is another Part, you know, that I think is super important for anyone uh, that wants to go even into leadership, right? You, know, you kind of have to understand that you need to build a very strong foundation in your craft because uh, that's what's going to, again, uh, you know, give you 
the, the right in, in some ways um, and, and help you build that trust with your potential teams down the road. Um, you know, but, you know, when I started uh, at IBM and I moved to Logi, you know, I moved into pre-sales, you know, I hadn't really even thought that I wanted to be a manager at the time. It was a new kind of career path for me, right? It was a change from being a software developer. So, again, I was super excited to learn something new. I was really excited to be doing something that was more aligned uh, with some of the desires I had, you know, at some parts early in my career. So I was focused on mastering that craft, understanding customer pain, understanding how to sell, understanding, uh, you know, customers wise, you know, understanding business cases, you know, uh, knowing how to handle objections. So I was really into, you know, being the best pre-sales engineer I could become. And then the more I did that and the team grew, I realized that I actually did enjoy coaching, uh, mentoring, bringing other pre-sales people on board, right? In fact, you know, just a, a little secret, I, I talked to all my, you know, uh, friends and, and colleagues that I had built over the years in my software development uh, career about, hey, you know, you should consider this. You know, I think you can uh, certainly succeed in, in an area like this. So I think I've always had a knack of bringing people on and encouraging them and coaching and mentoring and so on. And as I sort of grew my career, I felt like, you know, I might as well, you know, lobby, if you will, like kind of see if there's an opportunity uh, to actually go into leadership. And, you know, luckily, um, you know, the, the opportunity arose for me to be a team leader at Logi. And that's how I kind of had my uh, first taste of uh, formal leadership, so to speak. Right. And, uh, you know, and uh, the rest is kind of history, as they say. It makes a lot of sense. Because how, how are you going to teach your team things like customer empathy, which are really intangible, hard, yeah, soft skills, actually, but hard to teach. I mean, you can find people at the tech chops, and, um, but getting that blend, you have to, A, develop it yourself, and B, um, be able to you know, lead by example. Um, and, and C, I think just having developed that customer empathy is going to make you a better leader because being empathetic you know, is probably the most important thing about being a leader, right? Absolutely. You know, it, it's interesting you talk about customer empathy, Barry, because, um, you know, one thing is for sure, uh, in a product like ours, right, that, that, you know, at MongoDB, just because you're very, very technical doesn't mean you're going to be great at pre-sales. You know, frankly speaking, not everyone has that interest and not everyone's honestly good at it, you know. And I think that was something I learned along the way. Now, I have always had a customer orientation, so I think it was fairly natural for me. But one thing I've even learned as a leader, uh, as I talk to people, as I recruit pre-sales engineers or try to bring people who've never done pre-sales into pre-sales, one of the key things I look for is not just, you know, what do you know? Sure, you have to be technical, technically astute, right? That's obviously a, a given. But even beyond that, it's what are the characteristics that you bring beyond that technology? To your point, are you empathetic? Do you understand Do you understand how to so-called read between the lines? There is that gray area. And, you know, engineers are always put in a bucket of, of, of thinking in ones and zeros, right? It's either true or it's false. And even as an engineer coming into pre-sales, that's actually an adjustment I had to make, you know, that if a customer asks a question, immediately my brain goes into, I mean, used to at least go into a true or false kind of scenario. Whereas one thing I've learned over time is there may be a reason they're asking that question. Again, going back to customer empathy, am I 
solving their problem or helping them find a solution to their problem or am I answering their question? And it's a very interesting distinction to make, right? Solving a problem versus answering a question. And time and time again, you know, it's important that pre-sales professionals or or those who aspire to be in pre-sales understand that it's not just about answering a question, it's about really thinking about problems that need to be solved. I can relate, um, well, to the the black and white yes and no, but also to another layer, which is how much information do you give? And I think that's a function of empathy too. Do I give the long answer because I can show how smart I am? And you know, when I was more of the behind the scenes technologist, that was really valuable. That was really good. That got me a lot of credit. But when you're talking to a room full of people, and you know you've got five people that care about five different things. You're not going to have time to give the the novel, you know, manuscript version for each person. So being able to pick out like what does this person care about, what do they want to know, and not let me tell you about every little detail I happen to have ever learned. Yeah, no, you know, it, it's interesting you actually say that, and I'll give you a uh, an example. I, I I had a meeting. This was a few years back, and it was probably a room of about fifty people, and I was given you know some you know, some form of a workshop, uh, you know, to the entire room. And it was interesting because the room was quite engaged and, and people were asking all kinds of questions, but every now and again, there was a gentleman in the right back corner who would always ask a question every, I don't know, five minutes, every 10 minutes or so. But every time he asked that question, everybody pauses the chatter in the room sort of comes to a, you know, a, 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 a lower kind of tempo, if you will. And something kind of dawned on me at that moment that this person is certainly an important person enough that when this person is speaking, everyone sort of, you know, holds back. And at that point I realized, okay, this is probably someone I need to get a lot closer to and uh, understand what their needs are. Now, to your point, doesn't mean I ignore everyone else's needs, right? Doesn't mean I start, you know, uh, neglecting them, right? But it's also important to ensure that while I may punt, depending on the perceived importance of a question someone asks, when that person asks a question, it probably just based on the way people are interacting with him, that that question is probably more important and that will carry a lot of weight as we uh, work further in the sales process. And it turned out to be true. That was actually the lead architect to whom uh, the decision sort of, um, you know, defer to. So yeah, I certainly understand that. That's great. Well, don't you love it when that person in the back of the room is actually faking it too? Like, are you able to call BS on, you know, we call it a sharpshooter in my past life where there would just be some person in the back of the room who's just asking things to ask and ruffling feathers, but, you know, maybe seems like they have some gravitas and we'd sort of be betting, does this person matter? Are they just being a jerk? Yeah. Yeah. they, they, They are those people too. And I think, um, you know, the empathy comes in uh, even while you understand that this person may just be trying to bolster their position and present in, in themselves in a way that doesn't really align with who they are within the organization. Uh, it's important that, you know, nonetheless, there are still some stakeholders. They are still a stakeholder in the entire process, however important we think that is. So it's really also about understanding how to respond to them without uh, going off on a tangent based on the perceived noise, so to speak. 
Yeah. And taking it like a pro, right? Like I think people yeah. tend to mirror what you, how you treat them. So my boss said once that, yeah, you, you took that objection, like a, a video game avatar. Like you just got, came right back up from the dead, popped up and, you know, with a smile on your face, moving along to the next thing, giving them enough to feel heard and more on the side of your team and how you're empathetic with your team and kind of teach them to do these these nebulous things. Uh, I've heard you talk about how it's important to let them fail and maybe let them fall into the trap of the sharpshooter, right? Or, you know, not detecting that most important person in the room, not giving them enough time. How much do you let people fail? Why is this important? And do you have any examples of when you have learned from a big fail that made you take this mentality into your management style? I think people learn through uh, experience. So one thing I've realized is it doesn't matter how much I put people in a room and I go through, you know, material and content after content after content. They'll retain some of it for sure. Uh, but the reality is that until they start practicing it, they won't really understand where those traps are or how those traps look in reality. I like it. It's just, for example, you know, riding a bicycle or riding a motorcycle. So uh, for those that don't know, I actually do ride a motorcycle. And I remember when I was learning to ride a motorcycle, you know, I took all the courses and I read a whole bunch of books and I even went to like a weekend class where you got to ride a little bit. But when it came time to actually ride my own motorcycle, I realized it's a completely different ball game, right? Riding the streets with all the cars and the trucks and the wind in your face and all of those things actually makes it quite different. Now I understood the mechanics and I know how to ride and I understand the safety and precautions I need to take, but in practice, it was still cognitive load I had to bear and get used to and become familiar with. And in pre-sales and in, in professional life, the same thing exactly happens, right? So it's really helping the team grow through measured failure is how I look at it, right? So meaning I won't leave you to fall in your face, right? But it's okay to make a mistake because those mistakes are where you learn or what you learn from, frankly speaking. And uh, what I found is not chastising people from failure, but calling out the learning opportunity, even calling out the improvement and adjustment that the team has made over time provides a lot more encouragement. A lot of leaders um, get really antsy and jump in to rescue their team uh, way too early before the team gets to really understand maybe the potential error of their ways um, or the pitfalls that like they you know they could potentially fall into. And while that's okay to do, you know, you certainly want to give people some guidance, like, hey, you know, watch out for this and watch out for that. Oftentimes, I think it's about, again, when we talk about the kind of people you hire, the kind of people you work with, the kind of people you recruit, is I recruit for things like personality and potential. There's some skill, you know, baseline that we need to have, right? But understanding is this person coachable? Are they adaptable? Uh, are they a good team player? I've done a good job of vetting for those then I have to have trust that when the time comes and they need to adapt and they need to learn, they will do that. And, you know, more than often, you know, you find the right people would actually make those adjustments. Personally, I've been there. I remember my very, very first, uh, you know, this was, uh, you know, my, one of my first meetings as a pre-sales professional. And uh, I remember I was having a meeting and I prepared for that meeting. But I think what I hadn't done is, uh, you know, enough of a dry run, which is obviously some of the things in pre-sales that we tend to do a lot of, especially when you have a high value meeting. And I did a lot of, you know, what I call like spot checks. I ensured everything was working. I did, uh, I prepared my presentation. I made sure that I had a really good 
understanding of what was in a deck. I even practiced uh, one deck, uh, one slide here, one slide there. But what I never did, Perry, at that point was actually go through an entire dry run, right, of the entire yeah. deck. Now, you know, as an engineer, you know, I did do a whole ton of presentations with customers. I have technical discussions, but they're more banters, right, where we're sort of brainstorming and coming up with a solution. So in pre-sales, where you do more end-to-end presentations, that was relatively new to me at that time. And I remember I was in a customer meeting, and the meeting was going okay, but as it went on, objections started coming in. Uh, things started going off track a little bit. And in the moment, I kind of found a challenge like, oh, my gosh, this is a lot more involved than I initially thought. Now, the meeting went OK. I think the customer was fairly nice and they were, you know, it wasn't a bad meeting by any means. But afterwards, I realized, again, going back to my motorcycle analogy, it's quite different when you learn and understand the mechanics, the theory of what you're doing versus when you practice. So one thing I do say to a lot of people before you roll out anything brand new that you've never done before make sure that you practice, practice, and practice again. You know, put yourself in front of a camera, in front of a mirror, go through the deck or whatever the material is, the demo, right, the content, end-to-end. Make sure that you understand the material very well. Make sure you understand your transitions, right? That's very important in making the actual presentation or demo flow pretty well. Uh, prepare for potential objections, right? What could somebody want to know in this, uh, in this deck or in this uh, particular demo with this particular feature? And I think that's what prepares you for uh, for being in the field. It's so true. And there's no better way to put yourself in the shoes of the people that you're going to go talk to, present to, than looking yourself in the mirror and giving that presentation. And it's so, it's so painful. I don't know why we resist this. It's uncomfortable, but it's just such high value. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so I, I also liked what you were saying about allowing the team to fail. And I think... You know, from someone, actually, I'm just getting into leadership myself. I'm actually hiring my first direct report starting next month, which is very exciting. Oh, but nice. um, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, he, I'm sure, will be on this podcast soon. So, mostly my perspective is coming from an IC. And I could always feel when I had managers that were so worried about me doing the wrong thing. And they were really trying to help me and support me, but they actually made me more nervous. And it was almost a bit like the self-perceived prophecy where, oh, you're going to do this wrong. You're going to do that wrong. I'm going to breathe down your neck. And then I would like do those things. So I I really like the kind of just the, I mean, the attitude that of course I'm here to coach you, but you're going to fail at some point and that's okay. And here's how we learn from it. Having that attitude is just, um, I don't know, a lot, a lot more inspiring. And, and it's also what you, the personality traits you want the employee to embody when they're talking to customers too. So I think it's very well-rounded. Yeah. I was just going to add one more thing to that. I would say that one thing is, um, uh, one thing I do tell my team is I don't care that you become perfect, right? I really don't. I don't care that anyone, uh, you do the job so well that you become perfect. I'm not after perfection, right? And I tell them I'm after improvement, right? If you identify areas that you need, to, you need to improve and you put the work in and the next time around you've made that marginal improvement, that's all that matters, right? And when you've done that cumulatively over time, right, you start to hit a point that some people may call perfection, right? But that's neither here nor there. And frankly speaking, I don't care about that, right? All I care is that you identify areas that need improvement uh, and you uh, and you certainly work on it. Right? Yeah. That gets me thinking a little bit about the the term, the pre-sales DNA, and it's something I've written a blog post about recently. And 
I don't buy it. Like, I don't think people are just born, just pop out of bed. I'm sure they might have some traits that some people yeah. can never develop, but it's not like you're just born with this thing. You're con- And people that think they are, they plateau. They they don't continue to progress, in my opinion. But yeah, I, I think, you know, I think certainly there are some characteristics or maybe preferences that people have uh, that make them maybe more ready or suited for a pre-sales role uh, or, or not. But, um, you know, again, for me, I think it goes back to the intangibles, right? I think it goes back to, you know, are you a team player? Are you adaptable? Are you, to your point, empathetic, right? Uh, and so on. And the actual pre-sales mechanics, you know, sales process, injection handling and those things, those can be taught. Those can be taught and those can be sharpened and polished. I just think it goes back to the characteristics that's required for those things to be effective uh, in practice. Empathy, I maybe can't be taught at its core, but I do think many of us are conditioned. I certainly experienced this when I was leaning in more to the behind the scenes technology part of my career, Uh, conditioned to not waste time. To, to get things done, to know the answer, the black and white thinking you're talking about. I don't think everybody, I mean, some people maybe are bored with that, but some people I think are encouraged to lean into that. And for me, I'd actually, I actually am a very empathetic person naturally, but because I'd spent so much of my career trying to prove that I, I could do, you know, I, I could commit some code or I could follow along with what my engineers were doing. And, you know, I, I would lose sight of being, um, you know, my empathetic self with as a technical project manager. I was just so goal oriented and timeline driven and like, let's just stay late and get these things done. And that's, I mean, I'm a hard worker. That's in me, but I wasn't exercising my empathetic part of my personality. And it actually took working in pre-sales to kind of tease that out for me because uh, suddenly I had new new measurements of success that I was being um, scored against. Yeah, yeah. And, and going back to working with teams and building teams and things like that, right? Uh, the other thing I also found in, uh, you know, that's also important, it's not just about, you know, what I can offer, how empathetic I can be to, towards the team because that helps them. And I think that's, again, another mistake that it is, it's quite possible for folks to make. Yet what I've realized, honestly, Perry, is that if you hire a great team, you have something to learn from that team as well. So if I actually give the team the opportunity to go experiment and do things and find out their own ways, more often than not, they'll actually come and surprise you. Like, wow, this is fantastic. I never thought about it this way. Right? So it's really about tapping into the collective knowledge right, of the entire team making sure that you're building that collective knowledge and being able to tap into it rather than, you know, I have something to offer everyone and I have to be empathetic because that's what they need uh, to, you know, it's also like, what can I learn from you? So, you know, it's also about humility on oneself that, you know, I don't know everything. I'd like to learn from you all. Right. And, and right. that also is part of why it's actually important to, uh, to be empathetic. It's also for my own good, right? It's for my own benefit, for my own learning. Yeah, absolutely. I bet you have a very happy team, Tosin. Um, you seem like a great leader. How do you measure their success, though? So many things that we're talking about are so soft skills. Um, you must have some hard metrics as well. You know, I think that's the hard part uh, for any organization because, you know, to your point, a lot of these things somewhat feel warm and, warm and fuzzy, right? So one of the ways I think is super important is, number one, creating a safe space for people to share their thoughts and opinions and their feelings. That's one thing. And so, you know, by doing that, what you tend to hear are, number one, you know, if someone is feeling a certain kind of way, dig into it and understanding 
uh, maybe the issue behind a statement, right? Because people won't come out and say, at least not everyone would, and say, I have this problem or this is not working for me. Uh, but when people start, you know, you start seeing some pressure, some tension within the team, maybe a little bit of thrashing, right? It's an indication that, you know, there may be a problem in a process, in a system, you know, in your approach or in my approach of working with the team and so on, right? Uh, so really building a safe space for people to talk helps that, right? And the metric itself is in gathering the input from the team uh, about those things. Uh, now, I would say that this requires work, you know. So one thing that we do uh, pretty well among the DB is really around, you know, measuring things like team engagement, right? How is the team feeling, you know, um, you know, doing things like periodic surveys to help people share their thoughts and opinion, uh, creating, creating it uh, in a very anonymous way where people don't feel the pressure of repercussion if they were to be a little bit more critical uh, of maybe, you know, the team, the leadership, the process, you know, the company, whatever the case may be. And in turn, those are the kind of things that actually helps us improve as a team and as a company. So I think that's another way to really uh, measure those kind of things. The other thing that I also hear actually from people, not so much around the measurement, but also uh, allowing people to actually share feedback amongst themselves, like share knowledge and share opinions and share thoughts, right? So even before you get to a point where you're doing the measurement, creating an environment where things actually get better and improve, I think actually helps the measurement down the road hopefully be, uh, be a lot better, right? The results uh, helps the result be better down the road. You know, things like your North Star metrics are never going to go away. Did we hit our number? Did, you know, what is the win rate? How much time are you spending on things? These are important things. And if you don't have that, it's very hard to definitively prove value. However, there's a lot of qualitative stuff that ladders up to those hard metrics. And I, the last time I was in pre-sales, we had one of our qualitative metrics was, was these surveys that our salespeople would um, fill out on a quarterly basis based on how they felt we performed as a team. I like the idea of the team doing it to the team. We would do that in more of an open forum. But yeah, it was, I hated it at first. It was like, why does a salesperson get to grade me? They're going to, you know, blame me for all the things that went wrong in their process. And I'm just, I'm doing all the work here. This sucks. I should grade them. <laughs> but ultimately, that experience is what actually helped me get better. And they did have really good insights. They were working with me very closely and helping me develop that kind of customer relationship soft skills that I didn't have. You know, I had the other side set to go, but um, it, it really did help, even though I was resistant to it. So I, I think that's good. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I'd say pre-sales and sales, frankly speaking, um, is um, more of a partnership than maybe a lot of people give it credit for, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, you are the ones in the front lines, right? Uh, dealing with customers, strategizing about opportunities, you know, looking at opportunity, you know, looking at areas of improvement and so on. So I think that it's so important that the philosophy behind sales and pre-sales is actually that of a partnership rather than that of a, you know, resource, you know, where pre-sales is a resource for sales, right? It's strongly, and if it's a, if it's a partnership and if a strong partnership is developed, I think it becomes less daunting or less scary when, you know, it's now time to actually say, hey, let's actually do a 360 feedback kind of survey where, you know, we understand an area of improvement for the team, right? And it's the same thing goes around, right? I think uh, sales teams should also encourage 
those kind of feedback from pre-sales to sales as well, right? I think if it's one direction, it can have that uh, impression that you mentioned, but in both directions, I think can be extremely beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think in my case, the, the AEs were typically asking for that always. And that's really what makes a good AE for me is, and, and that's how I learned to seek that feedback often and early and all the hard stuff. <laughs> I, I was curious to uh, hear from you, how have you seen pre-sales evolve? You've been in the industry for a while. So, you know, how has it changed since you, you got in here, you found out what it was, and now you've been around for a few years? Um, you know, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when I first got into pre-sales, in, in all transparency, I think I looked at pre-sales as a, in some ways, a siloed function in the organization that worked closely uh, with another team. And as pre-sales has evolved over the years, what I've found, come to find out, and as you know, bet other leaders have, uh, is that pre-sales is only as successful as the partnership that you know we have with sales, right? So that's the first thing, and that's important to close really big deals, to build culture within the organization, uh, and so on and so forth. But the other thing as well is uh, it goes beyond pre-sales into much more of a customer engineering mindset. Now, if you think about pre-sales, pre-sales is not just about closing deals, right? Uh, pre-sales actually stand as a stands at the center of lots of different functions, uh, product support, consulting, sales, engineering, and so on, and you know, developer relations. And pre-sales work extremely closely with all of these functions within the organization, right? And as such, um, it becomes a super important hub for information flow um, across the entire organization. So, you know, now what I'm starting to see is much more of a customer engineering focus where it's how do we get, you know, information seamlessly flowing between all the different groups, ensure that customer feedback gets to product, ensure that a new product feature and, you know, roadmap gets a customer in time ensure that when you transition from pre-sales to consulting, nothing is lost in a shuffle, things are not lost in translation. The customer has a sense of continuity. You know, it's not like, oh, I have to say all these things to the pre-sales person and now we close. Now I have to say everything all over again to the consulting engineer. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So support comes in and says, you know, pre-sales create this architecture, consulting created that architecture. Both of them are wrong. Here's how you should do it and so on and so forth, right? So what I'm seeing is sort of that transition, that evolution, where it's not just about pre-sales, but it's really around customer engineering, uh, synergy across the different teams, ensuring that, you know, we're working really closely together across all the customer-facing functions uh, within the organization, right? And I believe that pre-sales has a very, very important role to play in that. In fact, I would bet that at some point within different pre-sales organization, you might start seeing pre-sales gathering information, curating it, and dispersing it across the functions. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And honestly, it sounds hard. It's a lot of different groups. We talk a lot about this hub, the center of excellence kind of thing. But at the end of the day, you're also revenue warriors. And it's a lot of work to be fighting for those numbers and also being the shepherds of a lot of really important data flowing in a lot of different directions. So of course, you know, being at Vivin, I think that pre-sales should use a system to make this easier. So it's not just throwing more humans at the problem, which, you know, even the best pre-sales person, the three-legged unicorn, as I've heard you say before, is not going to do a perfect job. Human error happens. So just throwing it out there. But <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm sorry it's got you, but I, I, I also think you're absolutely right. I think that is why the pre-sales function specifically within an organization 
uh, is such an important one uh, that I also think as um, you know one that see you know you know chief product officers and chief technology officers and CEOs for that matter are really looking at and leaning on to help define the future of you know the customer engagement, customer engineering, customer success, so to speak. So, what do you think the future looks like? Is every company going to have a pre-sales C-level, a, a VP, a, a chief of pre-sales, a field CTO that is happening? Is this going to yeah. be more more common? You know, I mean, different companies may call it different things, but I think uh, w- what you see more and more within different organizations are uh, the roles of chief customer officers, right? Um, and I think, again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, not just focusing on a pre-sales component of it, but focusing on a customer success and customer engineering component of it, right? And I think that's why those roles specifically will certainly exist, right? You know, chief customer officers and things like that, right? That's that's where I see it going, right? And then pre-sales obviously uh, becomes a very instrumental, important part of that entire structure. Yeah, and I, I think as long as the customer officer, the chief customer officer, is really firmly rooted in pre-sales, and it's not just a, actually I'm on the customer side, and yeah, there's this pre-sales function. They actually report to the CRO. Yeah. I, I feel like that is the risk with only having a chief customer officer, but I've seen it work too. Um, but I've also experienced it be a real problem when my pre-sales team moved over to. Um, post-sales or even under the CTO. And it just depends on the organization, I suppose. But at the end of the day, getting the insights, the buyer insights, the customers before their customers insights up to that strategic level, I think is is the most important thing and is definitely here to stay. 100%. I mean, it, it all comes down uh, at the end of the day, it comes down to having successful customers successful customer base, uh, you know, the growing revenue, extending your reach in the market, right, and so on, right? So whatever functions help uh, facilitate those kind of things, uh, I think is what customers, uh, oh, sorry, uh, organizations are investing in. And I do believe that the chief customer officer is really intended to help uh, address those, right, including pre-sales as well. Awesome. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. And um, yeah, I, I just love your commitment to to getting the customer's voice everywhere in your organization and the awesome advice for leaders out there who need to build out teams that are also empathetic and, and enjoy their work and motivated. So thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. For sure. My pleasure, Perry. Good to see you again. Likewise. Likewise.